Rocklas Radio with Tanmay Shah. Rocklas Radio. Rocklas. 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 Rocklas Radio with Tanmay Shah. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Rocklas Radio. Today we are going to the land of Hakuna Matata. Lion King. We are going to the land of Lion King. So Hakuna Matata, Judy, how are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing great. Um uh from another beautiful city of uh, in Kenya. Um at the coast of Kenya, Mombasa. Um in in uh, in Mombasa we say hakuna matata but we also say life is pole pole. What does that mean? Pole pole? Pole pole means life is slow. So we repeat it and we say you take everything easy. <laughs> All right. Uh, alternatively, we call it um, 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 Mombasa Raha. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's the place where you come out to have fun. Mombasa Raha. Mombasa Raha, please say so you have fun. Uh, and what language is this? Kiswahili. Swahili. Yes. Such a it's such a fun and optimistic language. <laughs> Yes it is uh, and and I'm I'm looking forward to when the whole of Africa will speak Kiswahili. Why? Why do you want the whole of Africa to speak Kiswahili? It's already half of Africa speaking Kiswahili uh, so that we are connected more. Okay. By our by our own uh, indigenous language. Mm. Mm. So let's you know we have a segment about languages so let's bring that right now. So can you do an activity let's start with an activity. Can you please close your eyes for us? Think of your favorite memory and tell that to us in your own language in Swahili. My favorite uh, memory? Yeah, is... describe your favorite memory in in Swahili. Speak in Swahili. I speak in Swahili. I've said it in a sentence. What what does that mean? It Say it in a fun. paragraph. I want we want to hear the sound of the language. So elaborate. <laughs> elaborate. No, that moment cannot be described more than that because I'm just saying it was a great joy to set my eyes on my son when I first gave birth to my son. Okay. Yes, that was the greatest memory seeing my my son for the first time. So how did you feel? <laughs> Describe how did you feel? Ni kama ni miujiza. Um hakuna ajuae. Um Mungu mwenyewe anayajua. Um ni baraka kubwa kupata mtoto. Thank you. That's it. What what does that mean? What did you say? <laughs> I say there is uh, no one who understands child bearing. Only God knows. All we know is that it's such a great joy. It's a feeling that you can't describe. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would never know. I will <laughs> never find out. <laughs> You'll never find out, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Maybe in the next uh birth. The next life. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> in in Swahili, how do you describe something beautiful? The the basic word for um uh beautiful we say inapendeza inapendeza so inapendeza she she looks good or mm-hmm. he looks good or it looks good inapendeza inapendeza 
Mm-hmm. It looks and if good. You, if you're going on a wildlife tour and you see beauty of animals, how would you describe that scene? If I'm going on a safari, wanyama wapori wanapendeza. Wild animals are beautiful. Okay. Wapendeza is the word. All right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's go to the map and show and see find out where is Kenya on the map and here it is it, we are going to the eastern africa kenya is between it has ethiopia on the north south sudan on the northwest uganda on the west tanzania on the south and somalia on the northeast and uh, where where Judy is joining us is this Mambusa, which is in the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. The coastal town is... of Mombasa. Sorry? It's the coastal city of Mombasa. Hmm. You're very close to uh, Taswo East National Park, looks like. Not very close, yeah, but it's, uh, it's part of the coastal belt, yeah, coastal region. Where is Masai Mara? It's like people just talk about Masai Mara whenever they're talking about Kenya. So where is Masai Mara on the map? It's uh, south. Look for Narok. If you find Narok, Masai Mara is in Narok County. Okay, let me just Google it. Masai Mara. Southern part of Nairobi. Okay, got it. As you go towards Serengeti borders with Tanzania, yeah. It's on the west of Nairobi and it's very green. I thought it would be like like a, like savannas. But this looks like actual forest. It's very green. It's a, it's a, it's it's a large uh, landscape where the Masai Mara is is a mixed landscape. You find the savanna, but in that same area you find some places that are very wet so there's wheat growing. That's why it uh, looks green on the outskirts of the reserve in the neighboring lands. Mm. Yeah. Mm. What do you love the most about Kenya? What I love the most about Kenya is uh, the people of Kenya are warm-hearted. They welcome visitors. Mm -hmm. Uh, We take care of our guests. Um, uh, We are not threatened by visitors. Uh, we don't mistreat them. <laughs> uh, we don't profile them, and we don't isolate them. That's why a lot of uh, a lot of people find it easy to settle in Kenya after working here for a while, and they make it home. So mm. we're very warm-hearted people. Yeah. And I've pulled some pictures of the culture in Kenya, and the red, which is very significant, which everybody knows this shade. This tint of red. It's associated with the with the with the Maasai pastoralist community, but there are also other pastoralist communities that use different shades of red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you've got you've got the Samburu, you've got the uh, the Turkana. They also have their shades of red. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the shield they are using it looks the very similar to the one on the Kenyan flag. The what? The shield. Yeah, the shield. 
Yes, I think this uh, it's it's an adaptation, different adaptations of the of the flag. But our, our flag has got a shield, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's symbolic of uh, defending ourselves and our nation. Mm. Mm. So this is the this is the flag. Yeah. With black, red, and green, and the shield in between. Yeah. The black for the people, the red for the bloodshed for independence, the green for the land, and white for peace. Wow. It's one of the creative flags mm-hmm. with cultural depictions. I, I like this flag, mm-hmm. with the shields right. and colors. Wow. And about the people and the culture, I um, they have these long red robes. And there, in this image, I'm seeing a different colors worn by women. Mm-hmm. They're also wearing these long um, necklaces. What is this? What is this? What are these wires, like like uh, rings on top of each other? It's it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's part of the the attire, the the traditional attire. Mm-hmm. of this uh, community then beading and beadwork is an integral part of their culture and the beads are adorned for different things uh, basically for um, beauty for women but you'll mm-hmm. find that in the pastoral community even men wear some beadwork but maybe they wear it in their hands or in their legs but mm-hmm. women wear it mainly on the neck in the ears and uh, and on the on the on the head mainly again it's uh, it's it's common with the pastoral communities but it's just a form of cultural expression that's been inherited for it's been there for generations um 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 uh, it's been adapted into fashion items and now you will find it in runways you'll find it as beauty items uh, worn by many other communities uh, but yeah the 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 bead, uh, the beads for the neck. And the more they are, the more the beauty, and it also shows uh, um, uh, the the women's uh, ability. You know, the more you can bid for yourself and adorn um, uh, the beads. And the beads are used for different seasons, uh, different age sets, wear different colors, including um, for women um, the sash that they wear on top. Uh, the colors will tell you whether it's a young girl who's married or not married or just newly married or it's an elderly woman. The colors will be different all the time. So what colors are for an elderly woman and what colors are for an unmarried woman? I I am not an authority on the colored bidwork of the pastoralists. <laughs> <laughs> I just know that they, they are for different, uh, the colors mean different things. They yes. symbolize different things in yes. their culture and it gives a message yes. to whoever is seeking for that yeah. information. So, yeah, yeah. go yeah. there and ask the tribe. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I, I love how colorful the beads are. Yes. All colors. Absolutely. There are all colors in it. Yes. Absolutely beautiful. What What are these beads made out of? I think um, um, in the olden days, they say they would make them out of seeds, but today they import a lot of them from different parts of the world. Yeah. Plastic? Yeah, so today you find that most of them are plastic from different parts of the world, but in the past, they, mm-hmm. they used uh, different kinds of um, uh, seeds from different trees. 
mm-hmm. to do it, but it's been adapted now and everybody's, whatever bids you are able to access, yeah. And uh, what about the jumps? These are also something very common people associate with when we think of Kenya. People yeah, jumping. Like, not all of us are jumping. Like I said, it's a specific uh, uh, communities. This is particularly for the Maasai people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a way of cultural expression. Everything that is done is a cultural expression. Uh, mm. For these young men who are jumping, it's about showing their prowess. Um, um, some of them, uh, some of the, the dances were used to woo and attract uh, uh, suitors of wife. Uh, you will be more suitable for the girls the higher you jump. Uh-huh. Um, uh, in the past, it was also associated with the one who has killed a lion, the Moran who has killed a lion when they were still killing lions to become a Moran. So this, these are all just different types of uh, cultural expressions. What does Moran mean? A young Maasai man. Okay. So we all know that Kenya produces the most Olympians winning the marathons and long distance runs. <laughs> so why why what do you think causes that i don't know i think they they, they they've tried to study this but uh yeah i think uh, uh adaptation um humans adapt adapt to environment so maybe uh the adaptation to the highland environment because most of the runners come from the, the highlands maybe their adaptation to that uh, environment has enabled them uh, to build some resilience, but I don't know the science and I don't know whether anybody knows why. And do these Maasai people who jump for Proesk, do they, are they contributing to the high jump medals? No, they're not. It's different. <laughs> why? I, it's, 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 uh, this is a dance. The other one is okay. a sport. <laughs> no, but then they would be naturally capable to jump higher. Then... Maybe, yeah, maybe, yeah. Wow. So these these tribes which we we are seeing are just from the southern region. Where are the Maasai people from? Ma- Maasai people are found in the southern part of Kenya. Some of them are found in the northern part of uh, of of, uh, of Kenya, but mm-hmm. mainly they are in the where we the area where we have ma- the Maasai Mara. Mm. A national park, which is in, in Narok. Then we have another part at the foot of uh, Kilimanjaro called Kajiado. That's a, mm-hmm. um, and then you find some of them scattered in the northern parts of Kenya, yeah, in Laikipia. Wow. And what is your favorite food in Kenya? What is? Your favorite food. Um, I think different communities have uh, different uh, favorite foods. Maybe the one that um, uh, everybody eats commonly is the cornmeal. Cornmeal. What what yeah. is it called? It's called ugali. Okay. Is this what you're talking about, ugali? Yes. So okay. Interesting. It. So what 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 are the ingredients? What what are the things you see here on this plate? On that plate, you got just your vegetables, maybe your your meats and and ugali. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what exactly is ugali? This white dough-like it's, it's thing? A, it's a corn meal. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a dough made out of uh, corn flour. 
Okay, so it's just a dough. It's not a bread. It's a kind of a bread, but it's not mm-hmm. baked. It is cooked over uh, a mixed uh, water and flour. Okay. Mm. Very interesting. We we see this. We 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 even heard of this in couple of other southern African countries. Who describe? Yes, they do. They call it different things, but it's the same cornmeal. Yeah. Mm. Very interesting. What is one thing that you would like to change about Kenya? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> you love everything. Yes. <laughs> There's nothing I want to change about Kenya. The people are amazing. The the landscapes are um, are 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 beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't think I want to change anything in particular. The things that we have ability to change, the natural setting of Kenya. I don't think I would love to change anything about uh, about that. Yeah, the beauty of the country. It's very beautiful, no doubt. the yeah. outskirts and our wildlife reserves but when i was doing my research and couple of my friends who have lived in kenya they were talking about uh, poor safety in in nairobi so some of the people have called it as nairobi it was it was showing on the internet uh, um uh, i think if you look at the crime rates in some parts of the world even the developed world and compare it to nairobi you will find that nairobi is very safe uh what am i saying uh, i i don't think there is any big city that does not have any elements of crime okay mm-hmm. all okay. big all big cities everywhere in the world when you have 5 uh, 6 million people living in a place you will find elements of crime so i don't think nairobi is the unsafest place to live in yeah it's it's uh, it's not and by saying that i'm not saying that there is no crime but i'm just saying you can't you can't call out nairobi mm-hmm. for being unsafe we will then have to call out many other big cities of the world <laughs> absolutely yes there are more cr- higher yeah. crime rates in the yeah. city as compared to the rural yeah. part people are more inviting and they are more trusting mm-hmm. they trust yeah. everybody when they comes mm. and in cities mm. people are usually doubting and yes, people are productive yes. more productive of themselves yeah and people are surviving and if they find opportunity there are those who will go into into crime yeah yeah mm. Mm. Hey, talking about one more thing which i was uh, which i found a little interesting was um, what, what are your views on the recent law that supports polygamy Uh, polygamy is an uh, African uh, uh, tradition that um, uh, men will marry more women, more than one woman, and uh, there are those people who are still traditionalists, right? Mm-hmm. And by traditionalists, I think the separation is that the people who have uh, adopted Christianity, uh, then the 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 principles change. then they don't go for the the faith does not allow them to go for uh, polygamy or go for more wives but those who are still traditionalists um i think if that is what they confess that they are the law has allowed them to follow their tradition uh provided they do it within the legal constraints so i think the law is requiring them to declare that uh, i i have more than one uh wife i have two or i have three yeah 
so it's not restricting them i think it's just asking them to make it official that they, mm. i am a traditionalist and i have more wives and there are two there are three or there are four yeah what do the uh, women what do the women think about it uh, it depends on which woman you're talking to <laughs> if you talk to certain women they will say there is no problem for as long as uh, they are getting along uh the women are getting along everybody is getting their share some of them will tell you that um 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 uh, it's a way of uh, society sharing uh what they have there are probably more women than men and so there are certain men who will have to marry more women then you talk to the more um, exposed and uh, and uh, educated women or christian women or those who have faith in christianity and those who say no it's not the right thing to do uh that they will, you cannot love uh, three four people equally at the same time so it depends on who you're talking to right if you talk to a lot of women in the village in the rural areas they will see no problem right for example they i know that there are communities where they they it's actually the wife who's there because of the responsibilities and the things that they have to do in the rural setup they encourage their husbands to go and get another wife because there's too Why? much work There's too oh. much work. <laughs> All right, I see. Mm-hmm. For economical reasons, for dividing work. Yeah, division of labor. This work is too much for me. I go to the farm. I look at the cattle. I look at the children. I take care of the house. I do this. So maybe I'm tired. Now you can get somebody else. We share these responsibilities. So, yeah. Mm. And in general, uh, you have been to a lot of villages and you have done work in the rural areas. do you see the sex ratio vastly different like many more number of women compared to men or is it sort of equal i i, I think it's uh, uh, statistics or population uh, uh, statistics show us that we got slightly just slightly um um more women but we could also have slightly more women because maybe women live longer right mm. Yeah so at any given time there could be more women than men because the women uh, um live longer but i i i also think that it's not a uniquely uh, kenyan uh, situation right mm-hmm. yeah, where there is uh, populations have slightly more women there are many more populations that uh, have slightly more women than men yeah so when i talk to eastern european folks where there are more women than men mm-hmm. they give reason of war most of the men died in wars in the war ah and yeah, yeah it's it's different for different reasons so i wonder yes. what is the reason is polygamy the reasons for there being more women than men i don't i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> all right that's for us to I, i don't have the answer but i don't think so <laughs> Okay. Yeah. We we that's open to find out an investigation. Yeah. If somebody finds out do put a link or uh, description <laughs> comment in the description. Yeah. Kenya is has the all big animals and the big five game animals like lions, leopards, rhinos, elephants and buffaloes. Which is your favorite animal? The giraffe. Giraffe. Why? Yes. I just find it graceful. <laughs> graceful. Wow. I find it very very graceful in in its uh, in its posture, 
in its movements. Yeah, I, I love the giraffe. It's my favorite animal. Do they get violent? I I have heard they kick very hard if you they, go close to them. And when they feel threatened. You know, anybody, it's not just animals. Even us, when we feel threatened, when there's a strange being in our territory, we are always on the defense mode, right? So um, I, I bet if you get into their, their space and they feel threatened, they will, they will then react. But mainly they do, they use it to, to defend themselves and their, and their young ones from, uh, from predators. Yeah. That's their, that's their defense mechanism. Have, how is it to see all these five big or all the other big animals in one place? Like, does it's, it feel like a Lion King movie? <laughs> no, for us, it's uh, not a Lion King movie. It's a reality because we've got uh, uh, natural national parks. Um, they are not zoos. Whether you will, whether you will go and uh, stop somewhere and see all the animals at the same time. Now, you've got to go on a on a drive on a search. There's a day you might see so much. There's a day you wouldn't see. Um, uh, as much you might end up seeing the big five you might end up just seeing two of them or three of them so that is uh, that is in, uh, for, for us that is the that is the difference right that is the difference how would you subscribe how would you describe a successful safari a successful safari how i describe one uh, for me a successful as a safari is as successful as uh, your open-mindedness, right? When you go to the wild with an open mind and know that I'm in a natural area, I'm not in a zoo, okay? I'll go out today and I might just see the ants and the dunks and the, some antelopes and maybe one elephant, a few elephants I might see. I, the other day I might see just too many different types of birds. Another day I might go out and I will see the big, all the big five. So uh, a successful safari is, um, is based on, the, on, the, on the, the mind of the person going to safari. If you go on a safari with this mind that I'm going out today and I might see the big five, if you don't see them, you'll get disappointed. But if you go with an open mind, knowing that I'm going to an open natural area and the animals are in their natural environment, they might just have decided that today we are not coming out of the bushes or they have moved far away overnight and you're not able to find them on the first day. So the mm-hmm. best safari experience is to give yourself a few days in the wild and every day is exciting and different uh, when you are on safari with or without the big five. But we can guarantee that when you come to Kenya, you will see them, all the big five. Yeah. Not in one place, not the same day, but you'll see them. What would you say to people who are watching this and now are interested to visit Kenya? How they should plan their trip? Sorry, I, I, I kind of lost you. For the people who are watching this conversation, what would you advise them to make sure when they are planning their trip to Kenya? Mm-hmm. Give yourself time. Don't be in a rush. (laughs) 
don't be don't be in a rush uh, i think the minimum you should spend in terms of uh, days in a wilderness area to have a feel of the wilderness area and enjoy the place without being in a hurry and moving from one place to another is to spend at least three nights in one place right then you have uh, the three full days you can go out and go to different parts of the conservation areas and have a real complete um, experience of place but most people come with the idea they want to tick the boxes they want to go oh elephants tick oh buffalo <laughs> now where we find the buffalo and then in the process they fail to enjoy the entire natural environment there's so much that is going on um, in a in a savanna ecosystem that's uh, just slowing down and soaking it all in uh, learning about the uh, the 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 trees, the different kinds of trees, their nutritional value, their local value. Learning about medicinal herbs, learning about um, um, how the ecosystem cleans itself, right? Um, uh, looking at the dry bones and how they, over time, you know, um, the wearing and tearing that happens from uh, the the weather. Looking at different animal footprints and. So there's so much to do while out on a safari than just ticking the boxes of the big five. So allow yourself time to immerse in the place, uh, see the animals, but also get to meet the people. So visit um, um, villages and see, uh, interact uh, with the culture as well. Learn how these uh, communities live and coexist with wildlife. Um, look for the story behind the place, uh, uh, the story behind the, the big five and the, the story behind the, uh, the coexistence. Then when you, when, you, when you put that all together, when you connect all those thoughts, you have a much richer experience than the experience of uh, arriving in the morning, trying to chase out and see the lion and find out whether the things and then leave out, fly out in another night. You miss the story. I totally agree with you because seeing wildlife and just coming there to photograph and just go away, you can do have a better experience of that on Nagio, sitting at your exactly. home and watching the TV. Exactly. So, so you, when you come to a place, you need to learn the story, a story of the place. Um, uh, listen to campfire stories. Ask questions. Don't just click, 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 and then sit on your phone and then send the pictures. And when you, you send the pictures, when I ask you one question about the place that you visited, you don't even, some people don't even remember the name of the place you visited. They just say, I went to Masai Mara, but where in Masai Mara? <laughs> because they were just busy, busy with uh, picking out animals and taking pictures of animals. They even forgot them. Somebody, I remember one person, one guest one day said, and we asked them, where have you been? Uh, where have we just been for the last uh, three days? And he says, oh, I have been to Karibu. And we say, no, because when you arrive, Karibu is a Kiswahili word for welcome. Oh. <laughs> so anytime you get into a hotel or a lodge, you know, they will tell you, Karibu, Jambo, Karibu. So Jambo is the greeting, right? Yeah. Yeah. Jambo is the hello. And Karibu is the welcome. So the visitor said, I have been to Karibu. I said, no, this <laughs> Wow, that's something very interesting. Karibu, I've been to Karibu. Yes. When I would rather go and uh, live with the locals and find out about local legends and stories or 
what things they do culturally or or their aspirations or their their stories with the animals there i mean we don't get to get that on nagi or on the internet that is something yeah. that you only get to do there <laughs> yeah there's uh, not not everything can be on night view and internet some 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 experiences um are better uh, you get them better when you're immersed in them immersed in them when you're at the place itself uh, in real time when you hear the stories of um of the people and their uh, interaction with the uh, wildlife then you will know that the 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 lion is beautiful and it's okay to follow their families and see they follow them on night view but when you come to the ground and interact with see the lions from your safari vehicle and then sit around the campfire and hear your the local stories around the lion and and the community experiences around it then you 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 realize that yes there is a coexistence comes with the with costs right that uh, the the fact that lion lives uh, next to people has got some uh, social and economic costs that come to it and and listening to the people and how they have managed uh, uh, over time to coexist is very is very rich listening to stories of uh, dodging elephants while going to school to get an education in the morning hiding in the bush while hiding for a long time because suddenly you're hiding and you look around and there's so there are many richer stories around wildlife and place than what you see in that too can you please share such story i don't have my own personal experience because i have not grown up uh, in in those places but i have had the opportunity to sit around campfires and uh, hear stories of um, of the people who live there who act as hosts when you go there they are going to be their ho- you, you, your hosts they drive you around if you're keen enough to listen to their stories they they have all those amazing stories that i'm telling you about and how they have uh, uh, survived um, a near attack by an, an elephant and how they have built relationships over time how they now use uh, the direction of the wind to to find out whether where the animals could be so that the animals cannot get their scent so there has been adaptation for them to live in the same um, uh, landscape um, uh, with uh, with with wildlife of course then uh, there is some once in a while there is a, a sad story of a family member uh, lost to wildlife attack in the course of um, um maybe walking from one village to another or out when they're doing their herding um of their livestock there are those uh, instances but there are also the 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 stories of uh, survival and the near miss and somebody say oh I woke up in the morning today there was a whole roadblock of elephants uh, in our village and nobody would leave uh, the the house or go anywhere until the wildlife authorities came and moved moved them away from so there are many there are many faces of uh, wildlife that you will not see on a wildlife documentary you can only uh, listen to these stories if you're keen and interested when you visit the the destinations have you heard stories of somebody developing a personal relation with a particular animal like people have with their pets 
or are they entirely entirely wild and you cannot develop any sort of bond they are entirely wild you will um, and, and and of course uh, we are not the 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 wildlife act does not allow us uh, to domesticate uh, wildlife so even the guides who work in uh, the, the 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 hosts and the guides in, in the national parks and they've been there for years they there's nobody who can they have a special relationship with that animal in the park now okay maybe maybe when it's in a maybe in a zoo or an orphanage that happens but not in the national parks yeah yeah people the animal has to be in one particular place domesticated and that's not yeah. what it is it's that's wild it it's is. free yeah it's wild and it's free of course we do have uh, we do have orphanages and and those orphanages or zoos have the zookeepers and those ones have a special relationship with the animals that they take care of because uh, somehow um uh, they have been a little uh, uh domesticated to a certain extent yeah mm-hmm. mm. where have you grown up sorry where did you grow up i have grown up in a town called nakuru and then i have uh, lived in nairobi since uh, since i went to university yeah So in Nakuru can you or can you share a local legend or a story that your parents grandparents tell you Oh gosh I I I never had the the chance to live with my uh, opportunity or the joy of living with my grandparents um so so I I I I don't have memory of uh, of of stories told um, by grandparents and nakuru is not uh, it's one of the towns in kenya um where i grew up it's not even my rural village where my grandparents would have been living because mm-hmm. in, in kenya we have we have our rural homes and then there's places in cities where people migrate to to work right mm-hmm. uh, so oh. so yeah what about them uh, What about a fairy tale or a kids what one story that people they tell in school because you know I I talk to people from every country and listening to one of their local stories is quite interesting and tells a lot about the culture and it's just fun so if you remember we can Okay I'll have, to, I'll, I'll have to think about that yeah I have, um, to, I have to think about that but it doesn't doesn't come to mind uh, Okay what about a story of you uh meeting a in a going to a village and having conversation with uh people tribes there and a memory from that no i i only think that um, the memory i can i can i can share is um, um my first my first visit to the village because i wasn't born there my first visit to the village was uh, when my grandmother my maternal grandmother passed away um and i went uh, with my mother to the village and uh, i think uh, the 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 whole shock around uh, the morning the that has changed a lot uh, these days but i i think i was shocked by the amounts of um, mourning and wailing and how people were mourning that was uh, that was my first uh, um village uh, encounter 
mm-hmm. uh, going to attend my grandmother's uh, burial and and seeing all this way traditional way of uh, mourning and particularly the wailing and that was very how new. how is it done what is the traditional way of mourning and wailing i think people just uh, traditional way of mourning is that you 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 cry out loud and you you speak out whatever it is that you you say about the person you know about the person you recall memories you mourn their departure you 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 praise them uh, you cry for them uh, you miss them so it, it varies from one person to another but yeah the traditional way and people do it differently people do it very differently everybody um everybody wails in their own way so both men and women cried loud yes or... yes yeah okay both yeah. of them of, of course today you don't find much of it but uh, yeah talking about weddings weddings is something very cultural to every part of the world what is one wedding ritual that you find very interesting most of the communities in kenya do pay dowry and the dowry payment happens before the wedding and so um the 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 dowry payment ceremonies are very elaborate for different and they're very different for different communities yeah and i find each one of them intriguing in terms of uh, how they are conducted and what the requirements are yeah so can you share an example um there are those who demand that uh, there are some communities who that require that um the the groom to be would uh, have to buy um for example they would have to buy a suitcase for the girl to carry her clothes when she will be moving to her husband's place they would have to um give gifts to all the aunties of the girl all the uncles and brothers uh, um, uh, of the girl others demand that they the the man brings uh, beddings um you know like a blanket and all those kind of stuff uh, others demand that uh, um the dowry is paid in 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 cows others will pay them in goats and so it's all it's 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 all different yeah so it's the man paying the woman yes it's the man that uh, pays the bride price okay mm-hmm. so i think uh, this is common in africa but yes, not so is. much in india it is the other way in india it's mm. usually the woman paying the men but traditionally not we don't practice it in cities or metros that much okay. uh, but yeah very interesting to know uh, that and how long does the festival go the wedding ceremonies also the wedding ceremonies are a one day's event mm-hmm. yeah it's a one day's event the dowry payment is a, i i believe um, um it probably in the past it was um, more than that but economic times people are working distances whoever is involved so you can go and stay in the village for five days um uh, so it's 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 uh, it's a traditional wedding uh, dowry payment day and then the wedding happens for a night i know for um uh, uh mainly the arab communities and others maybe it's more than a day but for mm-hmm. the rest of the christian communities it is 
it is a day's event for each have you been to a non christian wedding no i haven't <laughs> uh, i have yeah. not been to a traditional wedding how how what is majority of the population become christian or yeah, still the ma- they follow ma- majority of the population is christian yeah more than okay. i think more than 80 almost 90% more than mm-hmm. 80 yeah so you might be you might be seeing influences of the traditions and and the christian way of wedding both fusing together yes of course it's been fused together that's why people still go and pay the dowry which is almost like a traditional kind of wedding mm-hmm. and then they come to church and do the white wedding mhm yeah yeah let's jump into second segment and talk about you judy what what do you do and what do you love the most about what you do i am a sustainable tourism consultant and i love to travel and meet people and see places and assess those places and write reports about those places on how they are performing environmentally and socially yeah that's what i do <laughs> and what is the best part about it the best part is about um uh, learning about amazing things that people are doing to save what i call in tourism paradise because everything that tourism sells is a bit of um a little bit of paradise so uh, i think the most fulfilling play thing for me in my work is having the chance to visit places experience uh, uh, all these different places but also to know that there are people who are going out of their way to protect these places uh, so that they will endure for a long time yes can you give an example of how sustainable tourism projects have been implemented in a particular um, rural village or a community there are many there are many 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 programs where communities i think the basic the basic um examples are where communities have been trained uh to become um to work in the industry they have been trained on the job um without any prior uh, educational background or training in the hospitality you find that they are performing well as amazing chefs in lodges and they have just learned they don't even know how to how to read and write but somebody just got to come to them and and they they will learn by seeing how somebody makes a, the recipe and they can make it after that um i have i have seen the breaking of barriers for communities that don't believe that men can cook and you now find uh, pastoralist men are uh, some of the best uh, chefs in the in the lodges in in Africa um you find that uh, sustainable tourism has enabled women um to join the industry even in the rural areas you now find uh, safari hosts and guides uh, safari drivers who are women across Africa in many in many places that's not just Kenya and this is because uh, responsible tourism uh, is calling for inclusion and integration so women are being included those who have indigenous knowledge are being included as guides and hosts they don't have to have a formal paper of having been to to school 
Um, uh, so tourism is building their capacity and then integrating them uh, to be the ones who are meeting and greeting and providing service for their hosts. This has only been made possible because of sustainable tourism. Otherwise, in the past, everybody will go out there and import their workers from different parts of the country, those who have gone to school and have the papers and the communities will be left behind. So sustainable mm -hmm. tourism has enabled a lot of uh, uh, indigenous communities to be integrated into tourism. Some of them have been integrated as creatives, which means they are sharing, they have been given opportunity to share their cultures um, uh, with visitors as they preserve their cultures in the best way that they want to uh, sh uh, share it. So they, they, nobody's really being left behind. Um, um, where sustainable tourism is in destinations, nobody's being left behind. Uh, the communities, host communities are being given a good chance uh, to participate. And I'm saying that this is the least of the basic things that sustainable tourism has done. But we also know that there are many other opportunities where education has been supported through sustainable tourism. And, and, and communities have had a chance for education through infrastructure, building education infrastructure like schools, uh, providing um, um, uh, uh, facilities uh, in those schools, um, providing bursaries to meet the cost of education, and just opening a new opportunity and space for, uh, for the, these uh, communities to be able to go into other careers and, and also become part of uh, transforming their communities. Our healthcare, um, access to water, um, um, reduction of uh, energy poverty and water poverty in tourism destinations is because of uh, responsible tourism again, um, where tourism meets, uh, fills in the gap uh, for the communities. So there's a lot and that's just for, uh, for, for people. And then there's the whole uh, element of trade and doing business with the community, um, encouraging them to start um, businesses so that they can be suppliers of, uh, so growing the volume of trade with communities is another uh, positive of uh, sustainable tourism. Then we have the entire and all the environmental side of uh, um, uh, supporting conservation, supporting research on species, uh, supporting programs to reduce uh, human and, and wildlife uh, uh, conflict, um, um, managing the science so that um, uh, human beings don't encroach too much on the, on the wildlife species. Uh, sustainable tourism has enabled tourism to identify which ones are wildlife corridors or sensitive ecosystems. And so tourism is removed away, built environment is removed away from those uh, sensitive um, 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 uh, ecosystems. Uh, today, uh, uh, forward-looking tourism businesses are conscious about their carbon footprints and they're doing all that they could to minimize that carbon footprint in those destinations. So there, there, there are amazing things that are being done here. Empowering women is is uh, is big time uh, in responsible uh, tourism. We have seen in in Africa today in many places where we have uh, all women ranger squads, uh, which means we've got a, a team of women ranger squad out there in the wild protecting wildlife. 
um, um, uh, by themselves, right? We have seen lodges in Africa that are run by 100% uh, women run uh, from the manager to the last person um, uh, doing whatever menial job that are there. So we've got lodges that are 100% uh, women run. And these are women who are from those villages and did not have other opportunities um, before. I'm not talking about privileged women from the city who have gone to school and come back to the village. I'm talking about women who have been integrated uh, through apprenticeship and other systems of learning and have become amazing um, at what they do and now can provide um, um, the services. So the list I will say is that uh, um, um, sustainable uh, tourism has created uh, thriving rural economies by giving opportunities uh, uh, to everyone and also improving the quality of life. In general, I say there is a managing water poverty, uh, managing um, uh, energy poverty, uh, contributing to access to education, uh, retention and transition uh, in, through the education systems, through different types of uh, support, from infrastructure to providing tuition bursaries, to providing feeding programs um, um, uh, in schools, to paying salaries of teachers so that uh, they, there can be quality education, to buying uh, the necessary training material that is required. And this, this, this I, I think if, uh, if this were to be quantified um, uh, for the African continent, particularly um, Sub-Saharan Africa, if this was to be quantified, the input of responsible tourism in transforming rural uh, communities, many governments in Africa will be shocked at what tourism has done. Many of them will be shocked at the input and the transformation that has been done by responsible tourism uh, to transform uh, these communities. But because there is a, we don't have systems um, where you can have these uh, investments quantified and put together, even just for uh, uh, Kenya, if we were just to quantify the contribution of, um, of tourism to education in the last 10 years, I think it will take us first and foremost, we will have a whole year or more of doing research and collecting that data. And when we have it, it will be, it will be amazing. <laughs> it will be truly amazing. So the power of, uh, the power of uh, uh, sustainable tourism to transform destinations has been uh, demonstrated but it is yet to be documented properly. Yeah. I really love and respect what you're doing and the research you have and the hard work and time you have put into this. I also know that you have developed online courses so where people can go and join and learn about it. And as you're speaking, I just realized that tourism and wildlife seems to be a USP, unique selling proposition for Africa as a whole continent because of so many natural resources and wildlife present there. No people around the country or around the world have different USPs, suppose in technology or manufacturing and stuff like that. But mm. inherent, inherently, you have natural resources and wildlife, which can be made use of and uh, systematized. And as you mentioned, it's so wonderful to see, as you describe sustainable tourism, taking the indigenous local people and improving all the infrastructure there using and training 
all the local people not somebody from the cities or who has come and learn and shifted uh, very integrated this what you're doing can be replicated around the world especially in india because there is yes. a huge there are so many villages and towns here that could use some of the tips that you're sharing hmm. so next question i wanted to ask you is if i am a volunteer or any volunteer is listening to this who takes up a responsibility that there is this village i know i want to go there and mm. develop it and mm. make it sustainable and improve the tourism there mm. what are the steps you would want them to take in the beginning i i think uh, the first step is to get uh, what i normally call uh, tourism works best when you get a community license so the community must uh, understand tourism and by community license i just mean you get a community approval is this something that the community wants to do mm consent um, of the community first ask if the village yeah. is interested or no yes yes is this something that they want to do and you don't just ask them by telling them uh, what the benefits are uh, because then you will be guiding their thinking mm. you you start this conversation by describing what tourism is not the benefits of tourism yes this is how tourism happens this is what tourism demands you know tourism takes away uh, it restricts access to places okay tourism introduces um, um uh, foreign cultures all right tourism takes away certain rights um uh, from you for certain uh, places uh, so that you 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 can only access them at tourism brings in um uh, other people and other businesses okay tourism is um, is a, can be a strangler you know it can actually uh, come in and find that there was one cafe and in 10 years you find 20 cafes what does that mean it means that the local shops have disappeared they have been bought off um by tourism tourism changes um, uh, people's uh, lives and lifestyles um you find that uh, in a village in a fishing village that adopts tourism suddenly the fishing boats are now not for fishing but they are for excursions and if, <laughs> if there is no balance between fishing and excursion suddenly there is a new problem because now um, the source of protein for the community has been cut off because if a, a fishing community always sells some and keeps some for their families so their families have a source of uh, a protein now if you introduce uh, a tourism in this fishing community and say oh you want to integrate tourism into the fishing community so that you can offer fishing excursion if you not careful and not think about the fact that you need more people and more boats then you use the same boats you will suddenly have cut the source of protein for certain families and therefore you will have introduced a new problem for the community malnutrition in children and the visits to the hospitals become more the cost of healthcare increases you might be seeing the tourism revenues but you will not realize that actually it is now being spent on treating malnutrition and also so it's a whole ecosystem that you must make the communities understand especially if you're going to a village and want to introduce them to tourism make them understand the whole uh, ecosystem let them be the ones here that do the diagnosis if this happens what do you think will happen and what do you think will happen 
So go through a diagnostic process with the community completely so that they understand how this is going to translate in their day-to-day -day lives. If they understand this, then you can move to a next stage where you now have the community license uh, to operate for, to try tourism has been given. Now you have to go to the next step where you have used all these global examples of tourism, but every, every destination is so unique. Now you have to go to a process where you have to now co-design with the community. What is it that will work for us? We can't copy the tourism that works in Masai Mara or in Mombasa. And just say, because we are a coastal town, you know, this is how it happens in Mombasa. This is how, no, every place is unique. It needs a unique. It might be that in this community, the women don't want visitors before 10 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> because before 10 o'clock, they have other things to do. And they can only host and accept visitors in their community after 10 o'clock. It might be that they, they don't want to see a club within their community. So the tourism, you might then think that, okay, the, the, if they don't want a club, so what is it that is the alternative? And this is what I call, I call designing, you know, core designing the experience that the community wants to share. How much do they want to share? And what in what formats do they want to share it, right? A lot of times we go to help communities to start tourism. We sell them the positive things. We tell them visitors will come, you'll get revenues or whatever. And then we tell them, this is how it works. We've got to build a lodge here. We've got to build a hotel here. We've got to do these things here. And then tourism becomes disruptive of people's livelihood. By nature, tourism is a disruptor. It's, there's no destination that takes in tourism and remains the same unless the designing stage was done very well. And that's why I use the word designing uh, the experience and not planning the experience. Mm. Uh, because um, um, the planning has a tendency to make a lot of reference to what has been done. Designing starts from a clean state, slate. <laughs> so so that, we are... Uh, yeah. That brings up two more questions because yeah. as you really spotted out, it's not just going and telling about the advantages you need to make them aware about all the things that are going to change their lifestyle are going to be changed after that process but by human psyche usually people are very resistant to change yes so if you don't tell them the advantages or if you even if you share weaknesses and ad advantages they might not be interested to change so what no, do you do? I don't say you don't tell them the advantages, but it is not the selling point. Yeah? It is not the whole story. The, you don't come by saying, you know, tourism brings revenue. You say, this is how tourism happens. Okay? This is how tourism happens. Before it brings those benefits or whatever, this is the basic that happens uh, when tourism comes. Tourism is like I already give the, the, the things that happen with tourism. Tourism changes situations. It's, it, it comes with restrictions. It mm -hmm. comes with introduction of new cultures. It comes against those are the things that uh, appear as benefits. And so you look at your situation and say, what is it that we are willing to let go? What is it that we are willing to share right, mm -hmm. um, um, with tourism? What is it that we absolutely don't even want to share? We don't even want tourists to get near there. We don't want tourism to disrupt this or change it in any particular way. So, for example, a community say we have a sacred forest 
there's no way that tourists can go in there. That one we are not sharing with the community and with the, with the tourists. And if we are to share it with the tourists, this is how far they can go. Mm. There are, uh, uh, I'm giving that because there are certain sacred forests in Kenya where they, they, the tourists are allowed only up to a certain point. And even as you go in there, you must go in there uh, in the traditional way. They will dress you up with what you need to wear. You must wear black clothes as you go in there as a way of honoring their gods and all those kind of things. And when visitors are gone every so often, they do a cleansing. But even then, the visitors have only been allowed to a certain, up to a certain extent. And where they really do their rituals, they don't allow the visitors to go uh, in there, in those sacred uh, forests. So that's what I'm saying. In this stage is when you design, you're setting all these limits. You know, yes, you need the revenues, you can get money out of it, but to what extent are you willing? What are you willing to trade off for for tourism? It's not, so it's then, not, it's not to deny them the information on what the benefits are and what the risks are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So start with the design process and start with asking ourselves and in the villages and the local of what do they want and what they are not acceptance. I mean, yeah. what they can accept and what is a no-no? What yeah. is a yes and I what is a no-no? The first question is, do we want? Can we? Shall we? <laughs> okay. Yeah. And if we, <laughs> if we want it, shall we? How do we do it? And that's where you get to the place of now. We have seen everything. We understand everything. We think we can, we need it, or we want to have it. And if we want to have it, now let's design the way that we want to have it that would work best, uh, that would work best for us. I have been to places where uh, tourism, communities where the process uh, did not go beyond the discussion stage because after listening and everything else, the women just said, no, we're not ready. We don't want not in our village. Mm. <laughs> but if you did not ask them, if you did not have that uh, dialogue with them, you would have just come and say, no, you know, tourists will create job and whatever. And then, yeah. <laughs> so true. This is actually like what things, what insights you are giving is from an expert. It's, it's such an honor to hear uh, grassroots level insights from you who has been in this industry since a very long time and seen everything from the start to the end. So after the first stage and the second stage, when you want to discover what is unique about that village or what can be promoted or what can be uh, banked upon, how do you find that uniqueness in that village or that, that tourists might or would like to come and enjoy? I think that is where, why, why I'm talking about um, uh, uh, co-designing. Because the community now has to say, what is it that we want to share? Yeah. If we want to share certain elements of our culture, then we start thinking, what is an exciting way of sharing it? And still it remains authentic, right? Do we want them to come inside the houses where we live to experience how we live? Or we want to showcase it to them so that we will build um, uh, uh, sample houses where we go and show them how it is that a home, a traditional home will look like, the kind of food. Do we want to then um, offer them um, a tour of our homes and offer them food so that we can make the food with them and eat it with them? 
or make it by ourselves because we want the privacy of making it and serve it to them. These are details that a lot of um, investment programs don't go into because uh, sometimes you find that tourism is developed um, uh, from the national level. The investment plan for tourism development comes from the national government. And they think that uh, there's a beautiful place in that village. There's a beautiful forest there. There's a lake down somewhere there. There's a mountain. And they sit and plan and write an investment plan and tell investors <laughs> there's a land for investment near that lake. There's that mountain. And when these people come and they, they design or, or plan the, what they're going to do, they don't engage their community. And therefore, sometimes you even lose out. And that's why these days you, you hear a lot that... Uh, experiences are not authentic mm. for as long as you don't involve the people don't expect an authentic if it was not co-created with them don't expect to give an authentic it's um it's 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 a replica of what would be in that uh, in that village or in that community or in that or in that particular um environment so i i know i believe that the best way to pick out uh, uh, your unique um, your uniqueness the uniqueness of the service or the product that you want to to share and take to the market or you want the community to take to the market is to involve them in it and discuss how you're going to um, offer it. And I've given an example of culture. You mm. can have culture where you can allow people into the homes where you live or you can mm. have culture where they go and experience it in a center, mm. in a cultural center. You can give them the food to eat or you can invite them to come and cook with you. You can take them on a safari in a vehicle, or you can invite them to walk with Maasai Morans the way they walk in the wilderness areas, to come for a walk instead of going for a drive, because they know the landscape and they can still, like I say, they, they, they have the, the, the skills over time to know that uh, the, the animals, if the wind is blowing in a certain direction, they have to walk the opposite direction because then their scent will not get to the animals. So it's you can't do these things if you don't, talk and work with the communities. You can't hmm. create real unique, authentic experiences. Talking about unique and authentic experiences when planning from a national uh, level or from people sitting in Metro's planet, they'll be like, okay, there's a water body. Let's bring in some boats and slides oh, yes. and some uh, these inflatable amusement park type uh, things and people can come and enjoy and let there be some hotels and mm. food and They'll only get those McDonald's and all those things <laughs> that they already get in the cities and plant mm. them there. Mm. And then they think that this is a feasible model because it has worked in other yes. places also. Mm. But after we have discovered the uniqueness in our own village, mm. how do we promote it so that it becomes feasible or it attracts tourists. The authenticness attracts tourists because some, After. as a tourist, tourists would usually go and do things that they have already heard about or that they have heard from people that they have done it. Yeah. They might not go to something new very easily. Or uh, how do you promote a unique, authentic village experience, which you, is never seen or done before? You have to connect it to an. You must. In, in the process after you have designed your unique experiences, um, uh, your next uh, process is uh, coming up with an implementation plan. And your implementation plan must include connection. How are you connected to existing 
circuits, how do you want to connect with them? Which means you must identify who is close by and whose who's, uh, um, uh, experiences can you complement, right? So you must map your area. You must do a proper mapping of your area because these other places will help you to market your new experience that you have created. So map your area, know where you are operating, who is the closest, what are they doing, um, um, uh, which you would have done, and then you say, how are we different from them? Can we have an extension of their visit first? You know, Can we tell them that when you have visitors, you can bring them to us for half a day and we will teach them how to weave, okay? We will teach them how to make mats. You find out your uniqueness and make it complement what is in the neighborhood in terms of the tourism circuits. I believe that is the traditional way by word of mouth so that your neighbors who, who are where tourism is will already know that you exist. Then of course, uh, in part of your implementation, you will have to find out how will, where is the investment money coming from? Yeah, um, uh, we need a, a ground plan. Um, how are we going to promote this? Are we selling it ourselves through social media? Are we looking for influencers, our local influencers? How are we going to promote this? It's a big question. After you have done the core designing and now you are in the implementation stage, as you discuss the investment, you will be discussing the promotion, the marketing and the sales and how that is going to happen. The best that I have given is that the first way is word of mouth and word of mouth will help you most if you connect with the nearest tourism establishments and let them start sending you um, um, visitors, even for very short visits, not for night overs and all those kind of things. Until then, they will be the ones who will now take you to the market because as soon as they, they find, if you do a farm trip and they find that this is exciting, this is unique, they can come to us, they're the ones who will start talking about you and their guests will start talking about you. There's mm. no better marketing than word of mouth. So find opportunities as much as possible instead of investing a lot of money at the beginning in brochures and in whatever, invest in relationships that will bring, mm. promote you through word of mouth. Invest in relationship and focus on word of mouth. And yeah. very importantly, you mentioned complement activities to a already existing tourism exactly. hotspot. Yes. But what... In a case, if the village is nowhere near a tourism hotspot, like for mm. example, India, mm. most of the foreign tourists coming here, go to Jaipur or these common places, Mumbai and these cities, which they usually go to. Mm. But India is such a huge country. And if you go to the rural side, there are even small uh, villages that have never been or touched before. Uh, nobody has ever been there. Mm. So, and it, it might be quite far to reach out. How does one promote that? Or I think I think then then you just gotta uh, promote this as um, uh, really exclusive and uh, outstanding remote places. There are um, there are many platforms uh, online that look out for these uh, kind of places, and they promote them and include them um, in their portfolios. Uh, there, there, there was a very successful program run by a Dutch woman in Kenya, but I think uh, she tried to sell out. I don't know whether she's managed to. It was a, a, a platform called I Like Local, right? So anything that was local and authentic and in the villages and all that will be listed 
in I like local. And I know in many countries you find uh, this kind of, uh, of platforms that are trying to promote um, uh, rural, uh, authentic places, remote places, without uh, charging them much fee, right? Maybe they get um, their money from bookings for people who come to book through the platform, but they list um, um, uh, uh, for free, right? So these are the these are some of the platforms that you would have to go to look at them and where they exist. Um, uh, locally, um, uh, these digital guides, uh, guidebooks that exist online also help with this kind of promotion. But we're also living in an um, information age uh, where it is now possible to get out information very easily through the phone on different uh, social, media, uh, uh, social media places. Um, uh, people have revolutionized. I know places in Nairobi where TikTok without them ever advertising anywhere or spending anybody's money. They just went on TikTok and got one or two people to talk about the place. And uh, suddenly, some of these places are fully booked throughout the year. So wow. um, this, this, uh, this, the information age has helped this kind of places, this kind of uh, rural experiences, remote experiences, they can find their way um, online very quickly. The word travels around so fast, and people then uh, people travel. I, there's uh, there's a curiosity amongst uh, travelers for discovering new places, mm. and, and and this curiosity, if the information is available in in comfortable levels, because there is you need to know what people want to hear. How do we get there, right? Is it accessible? Is it easily accessible? If it's by road only, are the roads okay? Is it safe to go? What is the best time to go? And all those kind of things. Um, um, uh, is it connected in whatever way, by rail, by road, by air, so that I know that I can quickly move from one place to another? I found that when a place is connected by road, by rail, or air, or sea, and, and that connection is safe, there's no place that is uh, remote again, provided people can get there. I, I, I once uh, did a, a very unique assessment in an island on Lake Victoria. And until today, I tell people about it and people say, Does that, is there a place like that? And I tell them there's a small island in Lake Victoria called Rubondo. Um, uh, I, I flew in there uh, using this very small aircraft, um, and then um, by boat to the to the lodge. And I, I I did go there because of my work of assessing some of these uh, um, places for how sustainable they are, and uh, just discovering what they are doing um, and why they are in these uh, very unique uh, unique places. Now. I was surprised that I went there and uh, they were fully booked. They had guests, they have scheduled flights. It's in the middle of nowhere. And when you get uh, to the island, it's all forested. And they, 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 they say they are gorillas in that uh, uh, forest, they're elephants. And I asked them, how did they get here? How did the gorillas, how did the elephants, how did they even, how did they get here? Who brought them here? <laughs> Yeah. And the Lord said, we, when we came here, we found them. So we don't know who brought them. 
Wow. We, came, we, we came here we came here and we found them and and it's full of it's full of hippos and crocodiles and that's beautiful yeah, so people will find those hidden places uh they will find them they will visit them because of the uh, the information age that we live in nothing can be hidden for so long for as long as it meets the interests and curiosity of the traveler so I'm no longer worried about um, places being uh, discovered. It's uh, I'm concerned. Are they good enough? Are they good enough? And if they are good enough uh, for consumption, then somebody will find them, and somebody will go to them. You know, talking to you, thinking aloud, uh, I am now thinking. Maybe in five, ten years, I will. I want to adopt a village and grow a, or maybe uh, develop a tourism in some place. Uh, near me or where I've grown up. That'll be so cool. I'm excited for it. Looking forward to it. Excellent. You mentioned good enough. What do you mean by good enough for tourism to grow? Good enough for tourism to grow um, means that there's something that is absolutely unique, right? Um, that uh, would excite uh, the markets and the consumers. Good enough uh, means that people feel safe to be there. They can get there. Like I said, uh, good enough means it's accessible by air, by road, by rail, by water. And that access is safe, mm. right? Um, good enough means that there is uh, some level of comfort that is available. I will be able to get clean water if i need uh, clean water which is i think it's a basic that a lot of people are uh, always scared of traveling to remote places is will i get clean water today people can take their medicine with them right so people are not longer worried people are, will i get sick and if they get <laughs> provided they know there is a way to get out yeah then the the, the how is the experience offered i think that is uh, one that is most important how is this different and how is it unique and i think also makes... apart from water i also think sanitation yes what of course think? yeah water and sanitation always goes together <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that's why i say people need some level of hygiene and confidence um, mm. um about the place so these days um, uh, when you are communicating like a place uh, it's a new place and you're opening it up for the first time you the best again is word of mouth is to bring um, uh, bring those who sell places like this or other operators, what they call familiarization trips um, in tourism. Get a few people to come and familiarize and let them be the ones that tell your story. Mm. Let them be the ones that tell your story. It's like it's like giving a trial product yes. to somebody to taste or if yeah. it is a food or a drink, you yeah. give yeah. 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 trial research. Yeah, that's so, yeah. that's so good. That's such a great idea. Uh, Judy, what do you think about India? What thoughts come to your mind when I when you hear the word India? I have just returned from India. Wow. <laughs> I was in, uh, I think, uh, is, that, uh, is that Rajasthan or Jaipur? Because I went to Udaipur and I went to Bangalore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was not my first time to be come to India. I have been to India before. I have been to Jodhpur and I have been to Dharamsala mm -hmm. before. Of course, I have tra transited through um, Mumbai, 
and through Delhi. I think I have spent a night in Delhi while connecting flights uh, sometime in the past. I have not spent a night in 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 in, in Mumbai. But um, what, what is the impression? That's what I'm saying. Uh, that uh, when I talk about my impressions, I want it to be clear that it is for the places that I have been to. Ah, and, and okay. So that I'm 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 qualifying. My statement, I don't want to generalize because I, by ah. being in those places, I cannot claim to know India, right? Mm, I absolutely. can only claim to know um, where I have been and the people that I have met. So when I think about Dharamsala, the Tibetans come to mind, right? Because uh, of the monasteries, the monks and uh, the places that I went, uh, I visited a number of those um, 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 places uh, like the, the the monastery of the Dalai Lama. So there's that whole element of India providing a refuge for uh, Tibetans that sits with me very well, the compassion that they have allowed them. And when you, you go there, and I went there a few times, and you hear the stories of um, acceptance and compassion and how they've been integrated into the Indian uh, society. I see a compassionate part of India. Uh, going through Delhi and through Mumbai, uh, then you know that um, life is fast and it's survival for the fittest because of the sheer number of people. <laughs> the number of people, how they get along, the vehicles on the road, the everything, how it all works is like a miracle right how everything moves in those big um, uh, big cities it's uh, it's nothing short of a miracle when you look at mumbai and you look at the, the 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 buildings and the skyscrapers and how high they have gone yeah the skyline of um, of, of 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 mumbai is uh, is fascinating right the one thing that i love about india is the food i love uh, uh, i love uh, lots of curry and chili in my food and i i enjoy food in india i am not i'm not afraid of the curry even of the chili they were telling me this time oh you know our food is very hot i said bring it on <laughs> you, you they, know, were, they were amazed yeah i love i love indian food yeah so do you is is the kenyan food spicy do you have no. chilies no, okay. uh, people a few people love uh, to add the chili to but generally our food is not spicy so on the scale of 1 to 10 if 10 was indian food how how much would be kenyan food on the spice scale one okay so it's yeah. completely bland mm. and i'm pretty but i'm pretty sure it's it has some it has more taste than the british food <laughs> <laughs> of course yes <laughs> uh, yeah if you could meet three people living or dead and go on a lunch with them whom mm -hmm. who would they be uh, one person that i would um, love to meet is the uh, of course i talked about the tibetans so it would be nice to meet the dalai lama <laughs> yeah just uh, to 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 listen to sometimes i call it the wisdom from the east you know, their whole perception about life, right? And how they live uh, life with limits. I call it mm. temperance. How they just manage to 
to live within those limits and uh, yeah, and uh, manage to conquer what I call human greed. <laughs> so I'd be I'd be interested to meet uh, uh, that uh, a spiritual leader. Uh, what question? What question would you ask him if you could ask one question? What question would it be? What has kept your hope alive for the Tibetans? <laughs> mm. Yeah. What is it that has kept your hope alive? Do you still have mm. hope in humanity? Yeah. <laughs> and why? Why so? That's a question that I would like to. I would. I would. I would ask him if I if I would meet him. Um, and do uh, let me know the answer. <laughs> I'll let you know the answer every that day will come. Did you say when you say three, you make it uh, complex? You should have just said one. That's the uh, one person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, so if you if you can think of other two, then it's okay. Otherwise, I have uh, another fact about Kenya that first Nobel Peace Prize was won. Um, won by a woman was from Kenya, and she mm-hmm. got it for sustainable development. Mm-hmm. She's a role uh, model. I admired her. Wangari you admired Mutai her, professor. Yeah. Hmm. Did you like what time period was she in? Did you get to meet or talk to her? Yes, yes, I did, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I know people who are uh, close to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are related with her, who I have worked with, who are related to her. I I, I got to, to sit maybe um, once in the same uh, um, conference with her. And mm-hmm. we, were, we were both uh, speakers. She was a chief um, uh, keynote speaker, and I was also a speaker. And, wow. and so I, I, I had a chance to share a platform. Uh, That's incredible. Her. Yeah, you are in sustainable tourism, and she is in sustainable development. So it's a very yeah s- oh, same field. Yeah, it's and her, almost the same space. Yeah, her name uh, mm-hmm. for the audience, curious audience, uh, Wangari Mathai. Mm-hmm. Wangari Mathai. That's her name. You can yeah, Google her. Professor Wangari Mathai. So if you could meet her again today or tomorrow, what is one question you would ask her? Um. Uh, sadly, we lost her. She passed on, uh, so I would not have a chance to meet her and ask her any question. <laughs> no, it's imaginary, living or dead. So anybody, uh, what, if she came, if she was here, if you could have lunch with her, what would, what question would you ask? I would ask her the question why she was unbowed in her quest to 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 change how um, uh, governance and governments perceive the environment. I think unbowed. That, that, what do you mean? She was bold. She was uh-huh. very bold. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Despite um, knowing that uh, this was not uh, an agenda for many uh, developing organiz- uh, developing countries, um, she faced a lot of persecution uh, in Kenya from the government for trying to defend forests. And uh, today, one of the forests that we have within Nairobi City. Um, it's because she she stood with her life in the middle of the forest and said, "You before you take over the forest, you will have to kill me." And uh, of course, she was persecuted. She was thrown in jail. She was um, um, she was attacked. Um, but she never she never gave up. Uh, then we have uh, two 
Uh, we've got a, one of the main uh, city parks in Nairobi called Uhuru Park. It was meant to be converted into a, a, a business and commercial center. She stood up and she and other women um, uh, went on a, on, a, on, a, on a hunger strike, fasting in that park for many days without uh, food until the government said we have dropped the plan um, uh, to build uh, in, this, in this park. It will remain a park. So she's phenomenal in many ways, um, a phenomenal, um, inspirational uh, she was. She was a fighter. She was bold. Uh, she she spoke to authority boldly, uh, courageously. She she worked with um, women to empower them, um, uh, but mainly she encouraged everyone to plant trees. Mm. I, I uh, she said uh, that um, once the last tree has been cut and the last river has dried, we will know that we cannot eat money. Oh yeah. <laughs> beautiful yes it's something to ponder upon yeah yeah totally yeah judy what are you curious about what i'm curious about i'm curious and this as i sit here today i'm curious about uh, ai and what it will mean for my generation my next generation my grandchildren <laughs> I'm so curious about what kind of world they will live in. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm sometimes I'm scared. I'm scared uh, that um uh, they will miss out on um um interpersonal human relations that uh, they will be exposed more to artificial intelligence about things that um the human interactions and emotional intelligence uh, will be affected because I see it already. <laughs> I see it already with a, with a generation that uh, is, is um, lacks or is challenged when it comes to emotional intelligence. And so I just wonder what will happen? What will happen? I'm so curious about, I'm afraid, I'm almost scared of it. <laughs> yes. Uh- do you feel scared about the VR and AR experiential entertainment? Do you think they are a threat for uh, wildlife tourism? <laughs> yes, they could be. They are. Yeah, they are a threat. And that's why I say the whole AI is uh, really, it's a space that uh, maybe of of my generation and my age maybe there is a generation that's not scared that believes that that is the way it should be that's how it should be but because you, if you think put... about it and you mm-hmm. you if if artificial intelligence will enable me to have an experience like I am in Masai Mara why would I even go there and does that that, that relationship does it um, build confidence enough for me to stand up and fight for wildlife? You see, if I've been to a park and I've seen wildlife in its natural setting, I will understand that it needs space. It's, it's a different thing seeing it on, on screen. On the ground, it needs space. So if it has to compete for that space with other things, then I will not have a chance to see it on my screen. But if all I ever get to see is the animal on the screen, I will not understand the intricacies. 
of loss of habitat, you know, um, what loss of habitat means for them, the threats and the conflict that exists, you know, uh, it's a whole different um, ball game when you see wildlife on the screen and when you see it um, uh, on the ground. So yes, mm. I'm, 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 I'm afraid. I'm scared. <laughs> because it's not just the screen. If you put on a VR headset that gives you a 360 degree view, you can just like you feel you'll feel as if you are in exactly uh, in Masai Mara. Yeah. But the one thing it cannot do is give you surprises it cannot yes. give those uh intricate moments with the localites or something that happens without you planned i mean that's yes. why we, we remember tours something that yeah. we that happened without our planning. planning yeah mm. <laughs> yeah and, and then I, I it think... removes it removes the attachment you know it mm. removes the attachments to the reality and that's the that's that's a big yeah that's a threat mm-hmm. Okay, so you talked about eating money uh, when we won't be able to eat money. But this question, this is one of the signature questions. How to make money? We all need money, but we all um, need to appreciate, like Wangare used to tell us, as you make money, think about um, uh, other things and the environment and the, 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 the place of nature in your life. Your life is not about the money. You are uh, you are um, a being in an ecosystem. You are part of an ecosystem, and you cannot live on money without that ecosystem. So you need the money, but you cannot exist exclusively with money mm-hmm. without the ecosystem. So you can get the all the money that you want in the world, but if the air is not clean, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm. If the soil cannot produce food, right, for you. Today people say, oh, maybe food can be produced artificially. Uh, these days we can make artificial things and uh, eat them. How healthy are they for your body? How much of them can you consume? Mm. Yeah, you get the money, you have a shorter lifespan. So everything has got uh, um, uh, its consequences. And I think that was a the big message for Wangari when she talked about uh, you will realize you cannot eat money. She wanted to make it that literal that uh, you know what? Yeah, there is a choice to be made. You can choose to you can choose to have a balance so that as you make money, you do not destroy the ecosystem in which you operate in. Hmm. Or probably you can think about money as a reward, and the more. The community grows, that's a bigger reward you get. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, but I also look at it uh, this way that we are uh, we are better off uh, thriving than being profitable. Ah, yeah. I, I like that quote, better off thriving than being profitable. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that's a good note to end. <laughs> absolutely, yes, spot on. Thank you so much for being a guest today. It was a great uh, talking to you and listening to all your amazing insights. Um, any parting word for the audience? I will. Anything? Uh, my 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 parting word for the audience. I would really just want to repeat the same quote that I love so much from the late Professor Wangari Mathai, the first uh, woman Nobel laureate uh, from Kenya, who said. 
once you have cut down the last tree, once the last river has dried, you will find out that you cannot eat your money. Think about that. <laughs> All right. And one question from me. How was your experience on the podcast today? Uh, the experience on the podcast today, the diversity of the questions, I was not prepared for some of them. <laughs> but it's uh, diverse, so I don't know whether it runs in one show or it runs in different shows. Yeah, but uh, it was uh, it was uh, it was broad, uh, a little bit challenging for some of the other questions uh, because I was prepared for the sustainable tourism discussion. So the other ones uh, caught me a little off guard, but uh, yeah, good discussion. Did you have a good time? <laughs> did you have a good time? Yes, I did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You realize that when we started talking sustainable tourism, I was like fish in water. <laughs> yeah, in your own territory. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there's so many amazing insights. You are definitely a pro. I have worked in tourism. Mm. Uh, we did. I used to conduct tours in Uttarakhand in the northern. We had there was a village where mm. I used to do it part time. So in summers we used to take school kids, uh, fifteen to twenty years old, mm -hmm. and they used to spend one night in the village. Uh, help them do the farming or what are the local things they're doing. One mm. one kid per house and mm -hmm. 20 or 30 kids. And then they used to come and build a temple or do some activities together. And that became a very memorable for them. So oh, maybe we can Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> do that to okay. more places. Thank you. All right. Thank you for having me. This episode is brought to you by Tanmay Shah. That's me. Best way to support this show is by sharing this with your friends and dropping a comment and review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can become my patron and a sponsor. That's not all. You can buy Rockla's merchandise and NFTs and much more. See all the links in description for details. Rockla's Radio with Tanmay Shah. Rockla's Radio. Rockla's. Rock Lass. Rock Lass. Rock Lass Radio with Tom Aisha.